Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have the quartet of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen. Each one of them take a look at issues that they are following in early 2023 for the new year. Shoutouts and rants follow as well. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Everything Compliance. Thanks so much for listening. Before we get to today's episode, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the inaugural edition for 2023 of the award-winning Everything Compliance. Today, we have the gang of Jay Rosen, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Marks, and Jonathan Armstrong. So, we're going to go reverse order today with West to East, starting with Jay Rosen. Jay, what are you thinking about in early 2023? Happy New Year, everybody. Good to see you guys. I'm thinking about some acronyms, and Matt's going to talk about one of these later on as we get into the podcast, but I'm looking at CSR, ESG, and DEI, and why they are more than corporate acronyms and why they should matter to you and your organization. When it comes to choosing where they want to work, today's employees value culture more than ever. Yes, good compensation is still vital, but as talent wars heat up, many job seekers find themselves juggling multiple competing offers. The tiebreaker, whether their company shares and supports their values. But there's a catch. Companies have to put some real effort into creating a culture that informs every decision from a place of inclusion, service, and stewardship. To accomplish this change, companies need to invest in three areas. And so here are those acronyms that I started off with. DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. CSR, corporate social responsibility. And ESG, environment, social, and governance. These three acronyms are all important to make a company more appealing to candidates, partners, and investors. And they are key for companies who want to be at the forefront of shifting to a more responsible corporate environment. Let's start off with most likely the most familiar one to you, DEI. What does this mean? It's about being understood and included. While countless companies go through the motions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, new generations of employees won't stand for gestures. DEI focuses on creating a welcoming working environment for employees, regardless of their identity and background. Done correctly, DEI levels the playing field and ensures that every employee is heard and represented. So why does this matter? On the surface, there may seem, this might seem to be a silly question. Having a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable workplace is an excellent and worthwhile accomplishment solely on its own sake, even before other benefits are factored in. The key to success, do your homework and listen to what people need. Instead of making the common mistake of operating with a surface-level illusion of inclusion by rubber-stamping a DEI program, you need to look at the impact the program will have on your employee populations. 
Okay, here's our second acronym we'll look at, CSR. And that's all about mindset and culture. Younger generations candidates weigh company authors more heavily than employers might realize. Social responsibility plays a starring role. It's no longer about what's in it for me. Today's employees wanna know where they're going in their jobs and how they can help others, how they can rescue the employment and end systemic racism, et cetera. Corporate social responsibility is the framework for the culture and provides an answer for those questions. CSR can be tracked back to the late 1800s when Andrew Carnegie and John Feller first challenged their fellow millionaire friends to support social causes. Almost a century later, the concept of the social contract between business and society laid out three responsibilities, create jobs and growth, provide fair treatment to employees, and contribute to the economy. Those responsibilities still apply with each business's corporate principles dictating how and to what extent those responsibilities will be met. However, CSR has since expanded its focus to become the cultural values that inform how companies do business and social good. So why does CSR matter? Applied in good faith, this can have a huge impact on your company and its employees. Why? Because the culture sets the tone, it defines your company and commitment, and it serves as a beacon of light for candidates looking for an employer that aligns with their values. CSR also has a major impact on how your company is perceived. So we've gone through the first two. Now we're gonna take a look at ESG, where the rubber hits the road. The last piece of this puzzle is ESG, which now has the impact of CSR and DER is measured, or rather DEI, sorry. It's one thing to say you're a socially responsible company, but it's another thing entirely to show how validating that statement is. ESG quantifies a company's ethics, risks, and opportunities to help executives make strategic decisions. While it sounds impersonal, it actually measures the impact company has on the environment and society in a way that can be compared to that of other companies. So why does ESG matter? ESG sets companies up to be more resilient in the face of crises, such as the global pandemic. It also helps companies enter new markets and sell more, especially to younger consumers. Potential partners and investors want real data. In the same way that investors want to know that a company has corporate social responsibility framework and culture, they are 10 times more interested in seeing the numbers. And that's where ESG provides real concrete value. In fact, ESG analysis is becoming critical to making the partnership investment decisions. ESG also reduces costs, tracks talent, and is considered good faith. So how do you implement DEI, CSR, and ESG in your company? It is best when they are used together as, above, as part of an overarching strategy. CSR is the cultural foundation and in qualitative initiatives. DEI is one of the most, if not the most important initiative with CSR. And then ESG quantifies everything to measure their effectiveness, attracts stakeholders, employees, partners, and investors. Here are some top trends and predictions for 2023, and we'll start off with three CSR trends. First off, a focus on sustainability. Business owners can expect to see an uptick in sustainability efforts moving forward. Consumers and employees would like would like to see how their favorite brands and employees use more ethical operational practices that are better for the environment and sustainability. Number two, the necessity of equity and diversity. 
fair opportunities, differentiated support and inclusion of people from all backgrounds. These are extremely important to CSR social responsibility trends that we will see in the coming year. And third, employee volunteer programs, an excellent way for companies to simultaneously build morale, increase satisfaction and play an active role in the community is through implementing employee volunteer programs. This is a CSR trend that is continuously growing and will surely see more, see its impact in 2023. Here's three predictions, upcoming trends for DEI. We can expect to see increased alignment through measurement of representation, but more importantly, employee sentiment on diversity, equity, and inclusion. How can businesses and HR leaders bring, apart, bring these important DEI conversations to the forefront? DEI needs to shift from being a set of programs and focus on the value of diversity to a threaded set of network of work where DEI is embedded in everything related to employee experience. And number three, what can businesses do better or differently in 2023 to create a diverse, equitable, and inclusive workforce, workplace? To elevate DEI in the workplace organization, they need to recruit definite, differently. Qualified candidates examine process bias and set interviews, not hiring targets. And here are the final trends to look at for three ESG trends in the coming year. The universe is ever expanding. The past year has proven to us with several noteworthy developments, including increased politicization of ESG issues, sweeping international disclosure and due diligence directives, trillions of dollars used in ESG assets. Lawmakers and officials at the federal and state level have placed companies and law firms on notice of emerging nuance, potentially pitting ESG efforts against antitrust prohibitions. Second, although environmental considerations have largely dominated ESG headlines, 2023 will likely see increased activity around the other two factors, social and governance. From a governance perspective, Multiple stakeholders and highlighting the importance of cybersecurity will be a key element of a mature ESG strategy. And last, and not least, with several leading analysts ringing recession alarms bells amidst workforces ambivalence to the post-pandemic return to office policies, companies may find that 2023 poses even greater challenges to human capital management workplace culture, and diversity, equity, and inclusion direct objectives. Now, I'm not making any guarantees, but let's circle back in about 51 weeks and see whether I'm Nostradamus or Karnak the Great. That's what I got, guys. Jay, I heard someone or several commentators say over the past couple of years that the acquisition and management of human capital will be capital, capital will be the key corporate challenge in the second half of this decade, it certainly seems like you're pointing towards something like that. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that statement, Tom. Everything that we've been through for the last two years, it's really thrown a lot of operating structures and businesses up upside down. So anything you could do to maintain your level of employees and continue to get them. We just had a very snappy jobs report from December. Even though people are have those worries about the weakness in the economy, it's still about hiring and it's still about getting the best people and getting the most out of those people for your clients and for your customers. All right, Mr. Marks, welcome back. Great to see you. What do you have for us? I'm going to talk about some 
acronyms or initials too, SEC, DOJ, IRS, C, and a bunch of them. But the reason that I, I mentioned them is that I wanted to start off 2020 with a, a public service announcement, and that is related to corporate governance. And in case you were in hibernation during 2020, there was a lot of things that happened. And I love the folks at Theranos, the obviously in of some cryptocurrency firms, which shall go nameless, and a whole host will, should cause boards of directors at least some consternation. And I hate to go back of, from a revisionist historical perspective, but if we all recall, a lot of this all related to corporate governance. And I, I, again, boards of directors out there that you do have a fiduciary responsibility and you are responsible several things related to corporate governance. And I think that revisiting them would be a bad thing to do in the, in the beginning of January. So, so if you're thinking about the structure of corporate governance, these are a couple of things that I think you should focus in on as an ethics. What does that look like in your organization? Do you have control over it? Understand what it is? Can you define it? Is it something that is, is it or not? But I think it's very important. Enterprise risk management. I know we all gloss over this every now and again, but from an enterprise risk perspective, that don't that enterprise itself, but it also includes the extended enterprise, meaning third parties. I've seen more fraud related to third parties and vendors over the last 12 months than I've ever Disclosure and transparency. Is there proper disclosure and transparency reporting perspective internally? but from externally as well. I know we, we talked about ESG comes down to disclosure and transparency. That for somebody else to talk about. Being around the horn with regards to other governance components, including feedback. We all know that the regulators have been pounding on that you should be using feedback in order to better your model, better your processes. Is that being communication? Is it timely? Are you getting the right information? And again, is the information coming that can be relied upon? A lot of times we're seeing that information is being provided to the board that may be accurate. Again, as you start off 2023, probably not a bad question to ask. Where Boards and committees, do you have the right structure set up? Are you meeting in the right frequency? Members on your boards, do they have the right skill sets? Are there any gaps or weaknesses there that you need to fill? And then lastly, the monitoring and actual oversight. Are you, we've talked about this ad nauseum, based on the care mark cases that have come through and some of the, is there proper monitoring in place and proper oversight in place specifically related to the, and again, these seven components of a governance framework, I find that most people really don't understand what they are, what they mean, how they all come together and how they all, we all know that sort of the silent and the deadly killer here is not cross corporate culture. So when you take a look at those seven components from a governance perspective, real on a foundation, which we all call culture. And if you can't understand the culture of your organization, have a good culture, or you have a culture that is changing, that's fine. It needs to be managed, to be handled with the appropriate care. And you need to understand that the governance components that sit on top of as optimally as they possibly can be until you really do understand culture. So it's again, it's that it's that amorphous concept that we all talk about. You can 
be measured? Yes, it can be. Is it one specific thing? No, it's things. And I'll give you some examples. Take a look at your whistleblower program. Is it really working? Take a look at how many times the chief compliance officer is engaged in conversation outside slap somebody for doing something bad, but actually part of be part of business decisions. And look at your exit interviews. If in fact you are doing exit interviews, what are people saying about your organization when they leave? Are they saying good things? Are they saying bad things? Are they tipping you off on potential problem areas? The things that you can use in order to measure culture of an organization. It's not necessarily one. Start off 2023 being optimistic that, that the boards out there and the boards of directors and consider this to be a fresh start. But I also will tell you that from basically from what I know, my colleagues keep me honest and in the right swim lane here. I think the regulators are at their wits end. There have been not enough warning shots fired across the bow with related to the regular, some of the conversations that have been happening, some of the wording that I see is being changed or stringent now when you start reading some of these enforcement actions. Not that it's changed, some shifting there with regards to the fact that I think less talk about, about compliance programs, about what internal audit is doing, and specifically or the lack of corporate governance. So Matt, do you have a question or comment for Jonathan? More for a comment, just to echo one point that Jonathan, you had raised about the information getting to the board and the models that you're to, I don't know, I guess an assessment of how well the organization is working, how well the organization is running. That's really important. And I think that we overlook sometimes the right questions to ask about a lot of the information that might wind up from the board these days is going to come from a third party that provides some data to you. You mix it in with some of your own data. It goes into a board report. But where is that company's data coming from? How do we know that data is reliable, even if it feeds into our spiffy models, which then tell us everything is great? But if it's bad data from flawed assumptions somewhere further down the line, before it ever reaches you, you're going to wind up with flawed information coming to senior executives who are going to reach flawed conclusions. But I see that a lot. I think that is one thing that the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board is thinking about these days with audit standards, because so much of good financial reporting these days is automated and is based on data analytics. And they're asking, where's that data coming from? What are the assumptions you're having in your models? How do you know that all of this is accurate? And that's only going to get more and more important. And I don't think a lot of audit and compliance functions have fully grasped or mastered all of the ways that you have to have a firm grip on those kind of issues. Yeah, Matt, you bring up a great point, Ruth. That's one of the things that we rely on from an investigatory perspective. Also, from an overall managerial perspective, those are the truth. Like, where's the data coming from? A lot of times when they do come and they do, they are part of models. You know, the findings are used to this, something called model validation. Yeah. From an AML perspective, ML models need to be validated. So I think that model validation is to carry itself over into non-financial institution type of models. And I think with the PCAOB is that if this data is coming out of a model or coming from some way that and ensure that it is as pure as it possibly can be. And if it's not, why not? Jonathan, I'd like to ask you some questions about culture because in October of 2021, Lisa Monaco, in her speech presaging the Monaco Doctrine, 
talked about the DOJ would start to assess corporate culture. That was memorialized in the Monaco memo. And now we have enforcement actions where there's at least a few lines about corporate culture in the deferred prosecution agreements or other settlement agreements. Are corporations understanding that the DOJ is now looking at this, so they need to as well? Or is it just the corporations that always did it have done it and the other ones still have their head in the sand? I don't think they've done it, Tom. And I, you know, maybe not having their head in the sand, but I think it's one of those things where they believe it's it's never going to happen to them. They're not going to be able to assess culture. But I think that like where the regulators can assess culture by looking at a, a bunch of data points, maybe from a DOJ perspective, from an overall remedial, like you have internal controls and you're doing testing and there's remediation activity. Is that remediation acting properly? Is the testing being done on a regular basis? Are they improving the overall control environment? Because if in fact you do have remediation plan and you're telling somebody that, that there's a deficiency or spots and those things aren't being remediated on a timely basis it's kind of an indicative of, you know i think i think the regulators are getting smart about that because I, I think they realize that like i mentioned foundation or the bedrock in which the corporate governance structure sits on and corporate governance risk and compliance it's a waterfall concept but that all being said if it's the or, you know, that foundation is weak and weary, that which means that your governance process, like I said, in my little diatribe before is or optimal as it can be. And that's where those holes or those weaknesses, I think, are the create opportunity for people to do really bad things or stupid things. So I think I don't think that a lot of people are thinking about how they can assess culture. And again, Mike, on today's on today's. Uh, on today's cast, keep me honest. Most there, I don't hear too often where we're like, "Oh, how, how, Jonathan? Can you assess culture? How can we bring it all together? How can we be assured that the messages that we're delivering through the organization?" I'm not having too many of those conversations lately. So, continuing our trek eastward, Matt Kelly, what's on your mind? You know, I talk about a couple of big trends around ESG issues that I think are going to come forward quite a bit in 2023. First, I think most compliance officers already know that sometime this spring, the Securities and Exchange Commission is poised to adopt a final rule on greenhouse gas disclosure. At least in theory, you are going to need to disclose several of your climate-related risks in the annual report, and you're going to have to disclose your greenhouse gas emissions. There are six specific gases that you are going to have to be reporting on, the volume of them. And this was proposed last spring. It was supposed to be adopted in its final form later on last fall, but the SEC proposal was, I believe, the longest and most complicated SEC rule proposal ever. It's nearly 500 pages long. I have not read the whole thing. And there was so much feedback to it that basically the SEC staff is going to kick the final rule into this year. So it's supposed to come sometime this year. would be rather poetic if the SEC releases the final rule sometime around Earth Day. I'll put my bet right there that maybe it'll happen in April. I think a lot about that. That is clearly going to come and companies are going to have to think about how are we going to grapple with this? The two big questions specific to the rule, I think, are number one, to what extent will you need to disclose your scope three emissions 
Those are the greenhouse gas emissions caused by your supply chain up and downstream before your products or your materials reach you and after your final products go out the door. And that could be really onerous for a lot of companies. On the other hand, it also makes sense for some companies. If you are a car manufacturer, most of your greenhouse gas emissions are scope three because they are downstream. It's what comes out of the tailpipe of your car after you sell it. That by far and away is where most automotive companies have their greenhouse gas emissions. It's not scope one, it's not scope two. So there's that. And then the other big question everybody's curious about is to what extent will there be an audit requirement? And will it be reasonable assurance? Will it be limited assurance? Will that apply to large companies, but not smaller reporting companies? Same sort of questions there also about scope three. Would it be for large filers? Would it be exempt for small reporting companies? Right now, we don't know. So there's an awful lot of question about that. And I love the discussion here because everybody knows this rule is going to get challenged in federal court like immediately. Republicans are going to say that this is a gross overstep of SEC authority. They already are saying that. But for a lot of large companies, and this is the second big thing I'm watching in 2023, I think the key question here is who cares? Because you're going to have to make these disclosures anyways, regardless of what the SEC does or does not do here with this specific thing. As one easy example, at the end of 2022, the European Union finally moved forward with a new corporate sustainability disclosure directive. I think I'm getting the acronym there right, Jonathan Armstrong. If I'm not, maybe if you could bail me out later. But the new sustainability reporting directive that is going to go into effect, I think, by 2024, and that's going to require pretty much all the same. Or if by some reason you are not disclosing in Europe or the United States and you're still a large company, and I don't know how that would be possible, but large companies are still going to have to make these disclosures to investors or consumers or some other stakeholder. Like, who cares what this SEC proposal is actually going to require in the final text? We are past that point if you're a large global organization. You have to be able to track it. You have to be able to report it. And that leads me, I think, to the third big issue that a lot of companies are grappling with, which is who's going to do this at our company? And I have increasingly seen this new sort of role emerging out of the corporate controllers function. I guess we would call them the ESG. Now, corporate controllers have already had a lot of experience putting formal processes around reporting financial data so that we know it's accurate, we know it's reliable, we know it's complete, and get put in the and we're fine. So they bring that expertise now to non-financial data you're going to have to report on. And some large companies actually now do have ESG controllers. Google does, Halliburton does, Bank of America does. I've seen other companies starting to hire in smaller, lower level people like a SOX ESG analyst. That is a thing at some companies now, but they're doing the same sort of function, which is saying, okay, we're going to put this number in the 10Q or in a sustainability report. How do we know it's real? How do we know it's accurate? Who is actually measuring our greenhouse gases? How do we know what our diversity and inclusion efforts are? How do we track who is getting promoted or who's getting hired and what levels and what is their racial and gender breakdown, things like that. A lot of that data is already in the company. A lot of companies don't know that the data is already in the company or it exists in these silos. So how are we going to 
pull together all that data, put it in whatever format's going to be required, make sure it's reliable. Who's going to do that? Will it be this ESG controller? Uh, the advisory firms have talked up this idea for a couple of years because, of course, they're looking to get more advisory fees to help you do it. But now I think we're actually going to see, for real, there's really companies that are going to start doing this sort of thing. Maybe they'll have a different title, but that's going to be the purpose of it, is an ESG type of function within your enterprise. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And then we'll just have to go from there. But I like there is no doubt that in 2023 and beyond, there's going to be a lot more ESG data that's coming along and we're going to have to respond to it somehow. All right. We're going to head across the pond to uh, Mr. Armstrong. What do you have for us? Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. Sorry to join you all late. I think my privilege of going last is that some of my themes are going to be similar, I think. And I'm I'm just reminded of Tony, a, a book on, I'm probably holding it wrongly, the book on the Tony Blair administration when Blair came in 97. One of the things that he did that was revolutionary then, not so revolutionary now, is he had five key things. Watch these five key things monitor me on my progress. Richie Sunak's tried this week to mimic it in a strange way. So his number five is, I will ban small boats. How he's going to do that? We know there's issues around immigration, etc. But are fishermen banned? Who knows? But I'm trying to give much clearer five things that I'm going to look at. Of course, I'm looking at more, but here are five predictions that you can maybe judge us on next January. Uh, one of them's already overlapped with what you said, Jane, what you said, Matt. 2023 is the year when more ESG chickens come home to roost. And what I mean by that is these corporations who say things that they don't do, a well-known Scottish brewer that talks about how great they are with staff, and yet its CEO, who says this, touches up female members of staff and requires them to be in uncomfortable situations with him on business trips. Organizations who say that they are moving to electric vehicles where the production of that electric vehicle costs more carbon than it saves. Organizations who make claims about wind turbines being kinder to the environment when they put the wind turbine in the migratory path of birds and kill them. So all of these, what you might call false ESG claims, maybe, Matt, your new monitor or controller role is sophisticated enough to analyze the numbers behind those claims and to prove them. But certainly from an EU point of view, there'll be more call on con on corporations to justify those claims. And of course, uh, we talked about this before, but the burden of proof is on the person who makes the claim. If you want that in Latin, a incumbent, non nict, the old legal phrase that says the burden is on he who asserts a fact to prove it and not to that person who denies it. So the burden of proof is going to sit heavy with ESG claims. If your organization is making ESG claims, make sure that you can cash the check you are writing. 
Number two, GDPR fines will pass the 2 billion euro level. I actually sat down and thought about this on Tuesday. Since then, we've had 458 million euros of GDPR fines announced just in the, as I say, in the last three or four days. So I'm pretty sure that, that this is going to be an easy claim to make now. We've had big fines this week, Microsoft for Apple, for Meta. There are more to come as well. Cookies is a particular area of enforcement. We've talked about this before. But if your organization has cookies on its website, and by the way, most do, and you can't control those cookies because people like Google and Meta and Face and Facebook have um, cookies on your website, then you need to take a harsh look at that. Some cookie retention periods, when we look at them, are more than 100 years. You can never, ever justify to a regulator that you need to keep hold of somebody's browsing habits to look at them in a hundred years' time. So this is a simple area to fix, but one that's causing a lot of pain for corporations. Something like 300 regulatory enforcement activities as we speak, lots of civil litigation, sort-out cookies, and this is the year to make sure that you're GDPR compliant. Third prediction, ransomware will continue to evolve. We just had some statistics from Black Fog that say that 89% of ransomware attacks now involve the exfiltration of data. This isn't as simple as locking up your machine, call your insurer, deliver Bitcoin, unlock, move on. It never was that simple. It definitely isn't that simple now. Most threat actors are going for this double whammy of locking up your machines if you don't pay. They've already got data that they start and release in the wild or sell to other crooked gangs so that those crooked gangs can try and extract money from you. We'll see ever more sophisticated attacks. These gangs work like the Ocean's Eleven model almost of having a selection of various talented different criminal operatives who combine together we've seen a money off offer from a ransomware threat group you great news it's our thanksgiving sale we're offering you money off the ransom expect to see more consumer marketing tactics in ransomware threats Expect to see even more use of social engineering and engineering not only to deliver the threat, but also to try and extract the ransom once the threat has been executed. So we're going to see far more sophisticated ransomware attacks, I think, in 2023. Fourth area, obvious, I think you've touched upon it already. Supply chains are key for many organizations. Jonathan, you've talked about that. The modern corporation outsources more than it ever has done before. And stuff that it decided was definitely, beyond doubt, definitely core business five years ago has been outsourced now. So as a result, organizations don't control most of what they do. And in areas like data breach, the outsourcer doesn't care about your data as much as you do. In areas like labor relations, 
the the organization you've got making stuff for you in China or Bangladesh does not care as much about people working for them as you do. So if you're going to try and control your supply chain and make them think like you, then you're going to have to make a lot of effort to do that. You're going to have to tell them what you expect in terms of cybersecurity, in terms of how they handle data, in terms of how they treat employees, in terms of whether they bribe people or not. You're going to have to make sure that your suppliers buy into your core values. You're going to have to back them that up with proper contracts, and you're going to have to look at monitoring all of that supply chain and making sure that it does what you ask it to do. And then my fifth one, again, it was my rant last time round, uh, crypto scams, where not only seeing individuals fall for crypto scams, but corporations are as well. Many organizations I know are having knocks on the door from people saying blockchain will solve this, AI will solve this. We're now getting chatbots will solve this. You can automate the compliance function to a chatbot who will answer questions instead of a helpline. Stuff and nonsense, I say. The technology isn't really there to replace compliance officers. It won't be there in 2023. And a lot of this stuff that's being sold at the moment is smoke and mirrors. I talked about some of these episodes last time. We've had the amazing shock overnight that the mutant A NFT really was, it is alleged, a scam after all. Who did that surprise? Not many people, it seems to me. And we talked before about other famous figures getting into this whole NFT scam. But it's not just something that affects consumers. I guarantee you that if you're a corporation of any size, somebody is knocking on the door of your HR colleagues or your boarding colleagues or your accounting colleagues, even as we speak, trying to sell them some sort of blockchain AI NFT chatbot solution, which isn't worth the paper that it's not written on. So they're my five cutout and keeps for 2023. Jonathan, I have to go back with the one you started with, the small boat ban. Uh, I have done some research into the history of England and indeed the United Kingdom. <laughs> and I've been able to find that small boats have been going to the United Kingdom, England, since at least the birth of Christ, perhaps earlier. And I was wondering what technological innovations the Conservative Party has uh, developed, which will help them to stop small boats from coming to England. I'm not terribly sure. Obviously, with your historical perspective, you'll know that Winston Churchill, for example, was very pro-small boat around the time of the Dunkirk evacuation. I'm not sure why we're suddenly anti-small boat, and I'm not sure the magic that Rishi possesses that enables him to, to withdraw small boats entirely. If I was looking for a cheap shot, I would say that perhaps he could ask his wife, since she has much more experience of offshore structures than I do. But but it baffles me as to what the what the device might be. But I guess Richie, to be fair, would ask us to be patient and he will unveil the great plan soon. Before we get to shout outs and rants, we had a question come in from the audience. Mark Merrick Ryback, rather, has a question for Matt. Going back to some of your comments, 
in what cases, excuse me, in yeah, in what cases would it make sense to outsource some of the work, Matt, you talked about in terms of scope one, scope two, scope three measurement or auditing? Or I will, that's a very good question. First, Tom, let the record show Julius Caesar invaded Britain by small boat, I think in 60 BC, so it's even earlier. But getting to the viewer's question about outsourcing and when should you try and outsource this, I would advise people to think about this, companies to think about this, a lot like SOX compliance. When would you either outsource or co-source your SOX compliance? Because you can, and there's not necessarily any reason why you couldn't do the same for ESG reporting, but you'd have to think very carefully about what are we going to try and outsource. Especially for ESG reporting, a lot of the processes that you might have with your company around ESG, you might not have a formal structure on it. People might not know that this is going on. And therefore, if you outsource somebody to put assurance on it or to build these processes, they're going to need to know the right people to talk to within your enterprise. The great example I heard over the, I don't know, about four or five months ago was a company that wanted to make an ESG-related disclosure to volunteer hours that its employees could spend on the job. Part of employee policy at the, this large company was that you could take about eight hours a quarter on the job to go and volunteer to cause. And they liked disclosing the numbers there because that is a great recruitment tool. Look, see, you should come work for us because we're so forward thinking and you get some time to go and work at your favorite cause. And finally, the compliance people said, where are these numbers coming from? And they said, oh, every department tracks it on itself. And like that's it's a noble idea. But when you actually have to disclose it, that's a terrible process. It was all paper based and everything else. Now, how would you outsource oversight of a disclosure like that? I don't think you should. It would be more like a co-sourcing model where the outsourcer is working much more closely with the company. Now, I can also see that handling it entirely in-house might not make sense. Most companies are not going to have the expertise for, say, tracking your greenhouse gas emissions because you don't have an environmental consultant hanging around on staff. So you're going to have to think through different parts might be handled in different ways. But start with, you already do this for SOX compliance. This is not about figuring out what's going on. You're figuring out is what we're saying reliable. Companies have been doing that with financial data for many years. So now how do we replicate that for non-financial data? When do we need outside help? How do we figure out the enterprise-wide view? All of this. These are not new questions. They're just being asked on a new subject. So with that, Jonathan, do you have a question? Yeah. I just want to stipulate one thing. I'm all fluidy, but is Matt Kelly, is just going to come down to everybody wearing a body cam and like being backed? Are we going to start nailing companies for not saying, when does this all end? And how does this add value to the shareholders? The ESG activists would say that this adds value to the companies by bringing more clarity around what sort of long-term risks they might be foisting upon investors. The great example I can think of is we are redeveloping the waterfront where I live in Boston. It's going to be a big multi-billion dollar redevelopment. It's going to take many years. An insurance company might want to disclose to investors, we're insuring this big new development, which by the way, thanks to climate change, half of it is going to be underwater by the time we're done because the waterfront already floods in Boston at high tide right now. And it's only going to get worse. 
That's their argument for it. I can certainly see that some of this is going to be a bit far-fetched. But on the other hand, if you are putting out materials to investors to say, this is why we're so cool, and there's no real mechanism to assure that what you're actually telling investors is reliable or accurate, then that could potentially be fraud. Right up to, yes, you can come work for us and you get 10 or 15 hours a quarter to go and volunteer. And then you show up and you actually find out, no, you can't. That's bogus. So these are the debates that people are having. And where is it going to end? Like, again, I would go right back to the first question large companies should ask. Who cares? Because you don't have the choice to argue that we shouldn't do this. We are going to do this. If we don't do it here in the United States, Europe is going to make large company do it anyways. It is what it is. And I'm not necessarily sure that's wrong. I don't know how right it is, but yeah, that's that. We can't get financial reporting right in the U.S. to operational things. So it's troubling to me that on ESG and failures in internal controls left and right, and those are those controls related to asserting. It just It's one of those things that I scratch my head all the time and say, bring value to overall completeness and accuracy of financial statements and the organization. But I don't disagree with you. It's the right thing to do. Corporate responsibility is something you have to do regardless. But I just wonder if we're just taking this thing way too far. On that note, let us now move to fan favorites, rants, and shout outs. We're going to keep the same order. So that means coming to us live from the West Coast, Mr. Rosen. Do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? I have a shout out. And the shout out is to doing safety drills. And the people I'm shouting out to commend are the training and medical staffs of the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. I'm sure we all saw horrifying footage of a young man in his prime struck down with a heart issue, a lung issue. And due to the practicing of safety drills, these professionals were able to resuscitate this young man and give him a chance at life. So I know people are like, why are we doing safety drills? And why do we have to have a compliance moment? Let me tell you, when something like this happens, you are forewarned, you have the knowledge and you have the ability to save somebody's life. So here's to the safety drill and here's wishing everyone a happy and healthy 2023. Jonathan Marks. Yeah, I'm talking about him. Damar Hamlin, speedy recovery. Obviously, American football is a gladiator sport. Although I watch soccer really for the first time weeks, and that seems to be a gladiator sport, at least at some points during the game. So it's interesting. My shout out goes to the NFL for actually canceling that game for the right thing. Yes, it was great that everybody was trained, and I agree with Jay, is ultra critical and, and Definitely important here. And the fact that they were trained a man's life, which is freaking awesome. But I think the NFL is thinking they canceled the game and they have actually changed the way that the teams are being seen. I think it says a lot about the organization and their mind trying to help the current players and the former players with, with that, that suffer injuries or these types of traumas. Roger Goodell, but uh, a big Huge shout out to you and your team for doing what you're doing and trying to make sure that they're at the forefront of all of this and for canceling the game. Matt Kelly. 
I wanted to bring up, I suppose this might be a bit of a rant or a rave, I'm not quite sure here, but the fraud charges filed against Ermenildo Castro by Seattle police, who is now accused of committing embezzlement against his former employer, the online retailer Zulil, where he basically decided he was going to impersonate the scam from that movie Office Space. He was yeah. an IT employee at Zulily. And then he decided to amend the code there that he could embezzle $300,000. And he allegedly did this last year. He was just charged in December. Uh, Zulili has since fired him. And there are a couple of different angles to that we have to call out about this case. Number one, why is this so fascinating? Dude, this is a SOX compliance thing. And we have talked about this, people. An IT employee who was able to go in and amend the code to be able to commit fraud, that is poor IT general controls. So where were the auditors? Where was the board? I don't know, but SOX compliance. Number two, he actually committed a second fraud where he was on Tinder, met some random lady, told her that he worked at Zulily. Why don't you go load up your cart with stuff that you'd like? I'll buy it for you because I'm so generous then went in, amended the code so he could buy that stuff for her at pennies on the dollar. So he committed dating fraud against the woman he met on Twitter. Excellent. And then everybody who's saying that he got inspired by Office Space, where that was the scam that they did in that movie 20 years ago. Let's all remember the original source for this idea was that movie 40 years ago, Superman 3, <laughs> where Richard Pryor amended the company's code to be able to give himself an $85,000 paycheck and then he wound up in a fight with Superman. So this is just a perfect example of, I don't know what, but compliance officers really, this is just the best thing I've seen come by our radar in a while. Mr. Armstrong, will you continue your small boat theme or you'd have something else for us? I have something else. I want to express profound sympathy with Prince Harry's dog. Now, we don't yet know the name of the dog for GDPR reasons. I've researched this extensively. It's probably Pula, the black Labrador. It certainly isn't Bogart, the lab shepherd cross, because Bogart, and this could be a movie in itself, was rescued allegedly from a dog shelter by Portia de Rossi, Meg Markle, and Ellen DeGeneres but then was left behind by Meghan Markle in Canada. So the dog is rescued from an abandoned dog's shelter by those three individuals and then apparently left behind in someone else's home. So we know it wasn't Bogart, probably Pula, but why extend sympathy? Of course, I'm not going to diss Prince Harry's war record, but by his own account, he was a man who single-handedly killed 35 Taliban. He also had a what sounds eye-watering incident where he was ridden like a horse, quote, in a field behind a pub car park. But the thing that seems to have really hurt him the is his dog's bowl, where allegedly he was pushed by Prince William, who also ruined his necklace and the dog bowl splintered and hurt his back and caused him great pain. And some poor dog not only had to witness that, but also presumably 
went without food, went without water, or was forced to, I don't know, lick its, lick its water out of fine bone china that was found in another part of the palace that night. So if it was Pula, I salute you and you have my every sympathy, not only for that distressing incident, but also for having to live with Harry and Meghan. I am going to go a little bit different direction with a shout out. Today, we're recording this on January 6th, obviously the two-year anniversary of the right-wing and GOP insurrection at the Capitol. But I'm not going to shout out to that January 6th. I'm going to go back 50 years to January 6th, 1973, when Schoolhouse Rock premiered. Amen. If you were a teenager or younger, you remember Schoolhouse Rock. It was so cool. I learned so much. And the top five Schoolhouse Rock songs are in order. Figure eight, unpack your adjectives. My personal favorite, conjunction, junction, interjections, and preambles. So I want to shout out to Schoolhouse Rock, showing that learning can not only be creative, but can be fun. So, gentlemen, that concludes our first episode of Everything Compliance for 2023. I can't wait to see what the next episode brings us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tom. Okay. Bye, Take care, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Have you ever wondered if you could join the Compliance Podcast Network? We had some great new additions in 2022, and if you'd like to consider that or just talk to me about what it might take for you to start a podcast, I'd love to talk to you. We're always looking for new podcasts for the Compliance Podcast Network, the only network for podcasters in the compliance space. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks when we have the full Everything Compliance gang back again. I'd also like to shout out to my colleague, Gwen Hassan. Gwen started the Hidden Traffic podcast about human trafficking, modern slavery, and issues surrounding those imbroglios that many companies find themselves in. Gwen not only won several awards in her first year as a podcaster, but she actually had the top two podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network for 2023. So congratulations, Gwen, and keep up the great work. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.